This is Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Primal Screen is about movies, from the ones on the big screen to the ones you stream. Hope you enjoy the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. Screen, a show all about screen culture from movies on the big screen to whatever you're streaming. A big thank you to Phoebe for the last three hours of Maps. I'm your host, Flick Ford, and joining me is Cerise Howard. Hi, Cerise. Hi, yeah, I seem to be here again. Yeah. What's with that? You don't leave, do you? No, <laughs> I don't sleep, I don't leave at the station, I'm, you know. I'm just a presence. <laughs> Studio pest. Uh, for tonight's show, we're going to be talking about the latest instalment of the Bond series, No Time to Die, and Jane Campion's interrogation of toxic masculinity, The Power of the Dog, both which are currently streaming at cinemas. But it's not just cinemas that have reopened this month. There's also been a whole lot of film festivals happening We had Melbourne Queer Film Festival last week and a few weeks ago we talked about the Environmental Film Festival. Um, And this Sunday, the Japanese Film Festival kicks off with a wonderful selection of the best in Japanese cinema, including a retrospective of Shuji Teriyama, uh, a spotlight on female female filmmakers, and special events about Japanese history and there's panel discussions about uh, evolving attitudes towards romance and relationships and gender norms. There's a whole lot. Um, and this is the 25th anniversary of the Japanese Film F- Festival, which started back in 1997. Um, and it's now one of the largest celebrations of Japanese films in the world. And to help us unpack the history of this festival is one of the programmers, uh, Simone Goran. Welcome to Primal Screen, Simone. Hi, thanks for having me. Firstly, what a remarkable achievement to reach 25 years of operation. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about those early years of the festival? Yeah, um, I mean, we're we're pretty stoked that we've made it this far. Um, I personally have, this will be my third year with the film festival. So um, I guess my, my knowledge of where we began and how we evolved is through um, yeah hearing about it um, from some of the um, the people who used to program the film festival, but um, basically the story behind how we began um, was um, JFF started in 1996 with three free film screenings that was held in a classroom um, with maybe around 20 attendees or so, um, and so that has now obviously grown to be one of the largest celebrations of Japanese films in the world. Um, our 
the Australian leg of the, the Japanese film festival, like entity is um, one of the largest in the world now. So that's like pretty massive. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. From. And here in Melbourne. Yeah. Yeah. So um, now we're across five major cities um, across the country. And um, we also have a free festival that travels all around to lots of regional cities nationwide as well. Um, so we've expanded um, pretty broadly. And um, as of last year, we've also now started um, our online streaming, um, mm. of course, due to things like the pandemic. Um, so, yeah, that's that's only allowed us to um, connect with more viewers across across the country, which is great. So apart from, I suppose, like a lot of those shifts are kind of more operational shifts, but what have the, over the 25 years, what have been the key shifts in, um, in what you're actually programming for the Japanese Film Festival? What have you seen over these years? Um, I mean, I, I think that, like, as time has passed, we've been able to definitely bring um, a wider range, or like a broader range of Japanese cinema to Australia, especially because... Um, a lot of the films that we can bring here don't get a, um, a wide release. Um, they're predominantly made for a Japanese market as opposed to an international audience. Um, so, yeah, and also I think um, outside of Japan, um, the, the type of films and cinema that's really notoriously known is like things like anime. Um, so I feel like we're able to just build on um, the authenticity of Japanese cinema, which has been um, an industry running for over 100 years or so. Um, so that's been been really great um, to, um, yeah, I guess, um, have a support the growing interest of Japanese films and cinema culture through, throughout um, Australia, yeah. You've um, expanded. I believe you began quite humbly, just not even a handful of films in that first edition. How does that yeah. expansion happen? Is it just quite gentle, a few films here, there each year, one or two more, then maybe retrospectives are introduced, um, start travelling to other cities? Was it that sort of trajectory? Yeah, I mean, we were basically it's about money. <laughs> so we were able to, um, to get funding, um, which is great, which really enabled us to take the festival to more cities across the country and expand that way. Um, and also in terms of the, the films that we were able to screen, um, our, our headquarters, which is based in Tokyo, started to offer their archive of rare, like 35mm and 16mm prints. Um, they have like, an amazing, huge library, um, and that which meant that we were able to share a more broader scope of Japanese films that way through these more kind of classic um, or rare rare pieces and, and also just share a bit of that, um, like, nerdy cinema stuff of like showing prints um and like showing the films as they were intended to be seen so that's really nice um yeah a really nice way for us to offer a more authentic representation I think of of Japanese culture through film um also down the track um we would have gotten like extra funding for things like um an assistant like expanding the team um that way but other than that we haven't actually really grown in size in terms of a team at all um yeah, there's just six of us in total, wow. including the director. <laughs> yeah, it's very, very intimate. We're like a little family, which is nice. Um, so in that sense, we really heavily rely on um, on volunteers and volunteer coordinators in each city, especially now more than ever as we're, we're not able to travel this year to um, the locations where we would normally do that. 
Mm. I'm, I was kind of um, going through the, the festival program. Um, as I mentioned, you've got, you've got an amazing selection of films and I suppose one of the most um, notable is your retrospective on uh, Shuji Teriyama. Um, for listeners who are not familiar with Teriyama's work, um, why are they such a significant figure in Japanese cinema? Um, well, Teriyama is seen as as like the the pioneer in a sense of avant garde cinema in Japan. But it wouldn't it would have started in Japan, but that like that has you know that would have influenced cinema as a whole worldwide as well. Um, he's actually not as well known as a lot of other. Japanese directors, I've come to realize, um, but he's actually just super prolific um, and has a really multifaceted career. Um, so he was not only a film director, but he was a writer, a poet, um, a social and political commentator, um, and um, working predominantly in avant-garde theatre. Um, so he his works were really at the forefront of experimental cinema and theatre in the 60s and 70s. Um, and um, he kind of, um, yeah, he he uh, had this. He kind of set the set this the, the, the scene for underground cinema in Japan. Uh, sorry, underground underground theater and cinema in Japan. Um, so yeah, I think um, his films and and his his whole kind of life's work is not very well known internationally. So it's great to be able to have these films in our collection in the film library in Japan and bring them out because, um, yeah, it's very hard to find them otherwise. So it's pretty special. Mm. I can't tell you how excited I am actually that you have five of his films here spanning the 60s to the 80s Mm. and that Klaus Kinski is in one of them of all people, which (laughs) blows my mind in The Fruits of Passion on, on Sunday and that another film, Farewell to the Ark, is an adaptation or at least inspired by uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez's 100 Years of Solitude, which also seems improbable on the face of it. But um, he was obviously someone with wide-ranging erudition and interests. And, and I had a notion he might have been connected with Buto dance forms as well, theatre. Is that...? Yeah, well, uh, but yeah, definitely. I mean, um, I don't know if there was a specific like correlation, but him himself being part of... Um, the, the underground theatre scene um, and Butor being a, a quite a more modern or contemporary art form, but like quite experimental and avant-garde in its own right. There would have definitely been, I assume, some kind of yeah inspiration and correlation between those those different art theatre forms. Yeah, definitely. And those films are free, if I'm not mistaken, free to attend. Yes, what a yes, gift! Thank, <laughs> thanks for plugging that. <laughs> yes, yeah, so they're free, mm. um, and they're showing at Acme. Um, but you do have to register to to get a seat, and they um, they're doing very very well. They're um, very popular. We love our our Melbourne audience because they love seem to love all of the um, the classic films and the, the print series that we do. So yeah, I would say getting quick. <laughs> Good advice. Um, and for listeners who are who are wondering what we're talking about, um, we're going through the Japanese Film Festival and all the wonderful events and, and screenings that are part of it um, and chatting to one of the programmers, Simone Goran. Um, Simone, before we finish up, can you give us a little taster of what you're most excited about in this year's program? Um, sure. Um, so um, there's... A great film. It's a it's a documentary called um, Satoshi Kon, the Illusionist, um, which is about the um, 
manga artist and animator director Satoshi Kon, um, who passed away, I believe it was in 2010, so about 11 years ago now. Um, he's an extremely highly revered animator and director, as I think a lot of people would know. He's made incredible films like Paprika, which is one of my favourites, I have to say. Um, and then earlier there was Perfect Blue from I the 90s. Perfect Blue. Yeah, just mm. stunning, stunning cinema, stunning um, animation. Um, and it's just, it's a really great um, insight into his career. Um but also um, you get to hear from, from those who have had, actually had the opportunity to work with him um, in his career, in their career. So there's a lot of other um, very famous um, film directors and, and artists in there who speak, speak to his work. So definitely catch that. It's wonderful. Yeah, indeed. A very... Um, oh, sorry. I was going to say it's also exciting that we actually get to be in a cinema. <laughs> yeah. What, will it be festive, this festival? Um, I hope so. <laughs> well, I mean, I want it to be festive, but sadly I won't be there. So um, we can't really bring the, the festivities in that sense. But I think the audience will be, like so far in other cities, the audience have been so, so great, um, you know, so invested in, the, in the, the festival. And I think everyone's just really happy to get back into cinema, get back into like doing activities, sitting in a dark room with strangers. <laughs> um yeah, it's it's just really it's really exciting for us, and I really hope that we can actually be there physically next year to host um, the opening event again. Um, but yeah, looking forward to to hearing how how it all goes down in Melbourne. Yeah, for sure. And if you've just tuned in, uh, we've been speaking with the uh, one of the programmers of the Japanese Film Festival, Simone Goran. Thank you so much for your time, Simone. No worries. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad that we were able to to chat all about the festival. Yeah, and the Japanese Film Festival is going to kick off this Sunday and it's running until the 5th of December. Uh, If you'd like to have a look through the program or buy some tickets, you can head to japanesefilmfestival.net. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R. Triple R. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Cerise Howard and myself, Flick Ford. And prior, you ju- you heard Billie Eilish with No Time to Die, which is the theme song and the title of the latest instalment of the Bond, James Bond, franchise. And to help us make sense of this iconic Brit, we have our very own iconic Brit joining us. It's panel operator and Bond enthusiast, Carl Chapman. Hello. I get to slide a different button. <laughs> Hey, hey. Welcome to Primal Screen, Carl, for your for your on-mic debut. Thank you. I um, hope I can uh, make it worthwhile. <laughs> <laughs> Look, this is the most uh, one of the most anticipated films of the year, but if you have, for whatever reason, been living under a rock, here is a little taster. The thing that no one wants to admit is that most people want things to happen to them. We tell each other lies about the fight for free will and independence, but we don't really want that. We want to be told how to live and then die when we are not looking. People want oblivion, and a few of us are born to build it for them. So here I am, their invisible god, 
You know that history isn't kind to those who play God. And you don't? We both eradicate people to make the world a better place. I just want to be a little... tidier. Oh, I love Rami Malek. That was wonderful. Uh, so that is No Time to Die, which is Daniel Craig's fifth and final James Bond movie. Um, so he first took up the iconic role in 2006 with Casino Royale. Then there came uh, Quantum of Solace in 2008. Then there was Skyfall, Spectre, and finally we have No Time to Die. Carl, as a Bond enthusiast, how, how many actors have actually played Bond? Uh, well, it's interesting actually. Daniel Craig, whilst he hasn't um, performed the role as many times as uh, Roger Moore, uh, he has covered the longest period, partly because, ah. of, I guess, of the delay from the pandemic. So, uh, I mean, this is a 15-year journey where we've seen really the character of Bond transform through that time, I guess with, you know, that deliberate kind of story arc, which in itself is unique to the, the Craig era. Uh, but we had Sean Connery, who did five, Roger Moore did seven, Pierce Brosnan did four, Timothy Dalton two, and Australia's own George Lazenby, one. <laughs> so who's, like, I'm going to put you on the spot, who's your fave and your most hated? That's a real apples and pears, isn't it? I mean, they are so different. You're comparing films from the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, and all of the social kind of mores that were around at, the, at those times. And, and obviously Bond as a character, um, you know, controversial at times, but also somewhat derided, I suppose, because, you know, the, the womanising and everything else. But I think Daniel Craig and I think the writers behind this have really taken it in a, in a new direction. And it's been a, a fantastic five-episode uh, arc mm. um, and yeah there's there's been quite a few firsts with this i suppose obviously the longest bond film at two hours 43 um and original- i didn't actually check that before starting this film <laughs> and let's just say it was a shock <laughs> but you know what it does it goes by quite quickly i think it does um, it's well it's well paced yeah it's, for it's, sure. it's the fourth what i'd call die film after live and let die tomorrow never dies <laughs> die another day new uh, genre and let's not forget a view to a kill and license to kill mm. So, um, and uh, yeah, it's also the first to be distributed by Universal after the contract with Sony Pictures expired uh, with the last film. Uh, And it's already the fourth highest grossing film worldwide of 2021. So is that your way of saying that Craig is your favourite? Look, I I guess I, you know, the favourite is often the area that you grew up in. And I grew up with uh, Roger Moore. And and for me, you know, and you think of the soundtracks as well with uh, Aha and with... uh, uh, Duran Duran, uh, and with some of those classic songs from the 70s and 80s. I mean, but, you know, at the same time, you do watch it and cringe a little bit. So mm. I think Daniel Craig's uh, tenure will probably stand the test of time a little longer. I, I am a big fan of, of Craig as Bond, I have to say. I don't know how you feel about him, Cerise, but I I really love where they started with the Craig, <laughs> Daniel Craig as Bond films, like Casino Royale, I was really into it and I rewatched that recently and enjoyed it immensely. Um, I loved the, the fact that it kind of did a deep, deeper dive into his psyche um, where the other Bond films I didn't think really even touched that territory. Um, what are your thoughts on him? Well, it's true. Um, he definitely brought some real gravitas to the mm. role and, and some torment. Mm. Um, so, yes, a bit more psychological depth. He's sometimes referred to as the woke Bond. Woke Bond. <laughs> Which um, we were joking about the a, other day. It's, a hashtag, it's, like, yeah, it's like the lowest hurdle to jump over. But mm. um, yeah, I I was. So you're a massive Bond fan, Carl. You seem to know quite a lot about the history of it. Um, 
what do you how do you think that No Time to Die fits into that broader filmography? Well, of course, there's. It's a difficult one to talk about this, this film in particular because I, I really don't want to give anything away. I think it's great to just go in and enjoy it with no preconceptions. I checked back on the trailers and really, apart from showing a few stunts and, a, and, and some of the characters, there's really no plot giveaway as far as I can tell in the trailers. So I couldn't even refer back to those and say, oh, well, it was in the trailer. Um, but the... Uh, sorry, what was the question again? Oh, I was just thinking, like, how do you think this differs from the other Bond films? Because watching the opening credits, and we're just talking, so the uh, Billie Eilish's song is, of course, from the opening credits, as yeah. is always the Bond song. But um, there's lots of nods to, um, I don't know, some, like, uh, how do you, the characteristics of a Bond film that you know will be in there. But there also seems some very key departures from that that we've seen, particularly in Daniel Craig's films. And I was thinking, for one, the female characters seem to have a little bit more depth and backstory. In fact, this one, and I don't think it's a spoiler, opens with the backstory of one of the fe- the lead females in this film. Uniquely, yeah, that's, yes. that's definitely a, a, a precedent, I suppose. Mm. Um, and as, as is widely known, it was Daniel Craig himself who asked for um, uh, Phoebe uh, Waller-Bridge to be brought in as a, as a co-writer. Uh, it's interesting also that the director, Kerry Joji Fukunaga, uh, it's, he's the first, it's the first Bond film where the director has a writing credit. Mm. Uh, I noticed that Daniel Craig was also an executive producer of this. Um, and I'd love, to see, I'd love to have seen how the script developed between when it was originally with uh, Danny Boyle, who was the first director signed up before he left Under a Cloud, because he had come along with his own regular writing partner, John Hodge. So when Boyle departed the project, we the, the producers went back to uh, Purvis and Wade, uh, Neil Purvis and Robert Wade, uh, and they have um, written, co-written the last seven Bond films, right. going back to The World Is Not Enough. So it was interesting that having almost gone down a different avenue, and I don't know how far the development went with, um, with Danny Boyle uh, and his writer, but, you know, it really went through quite a few iterations, and I think Phoebe Waller-Bridge would undoubtedly have brought um, a whole different... Uh, spin on the oh, story. Absolutely. She's remarkable. Oh, um, worth noting, of course, she is only the second female writer of a Bond film in the entire franchise history. I'm actually surprised she's not the first, to be honest. <laughs> the, <laughs> first, <laughs> the first was Joanna Harwood, who co-wrote Dr. No and From Russia With Love. Oh, right. So way back in the 60s. And yeah. then from the 70s, 80s and 90s, it was all males. Yeah. Look, I mean, I think there's a lot to contend with. Bond is a problematic figure at times. I know you hate that word, Therese. <laughs> It's problematic. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I think that they do engage with that history quite actively in the Daniel Craig um, versions of of Bond. Um, I feel like this film, we're not going to give away any spoilers, but I feel like there is a bit of bite to it. And like I said before, I love a lot of the characters that are involved with this. Uh, Paloma is wonderful. Um, She comes up as this sidekick on one of the missions and she's got this real goofiness to her. Um, You've got the wonderful, um, I've blanked on her name, but um, Madeline, who is played by uh, Leah Sedo, Sedo, yes, who people will know from uh, Blue is the Warmest Colour. There's lots of really interesting characters to this. I actually loved... um, I really loved the opening of this film. I just think it is one of the best openings to a Bond film and I just was immediately drawn into it. Um, but I think it's the character, the side characters that kind of got me this time. It's the longest prologue in Bond history at oh, 23 minutes and 47 seconds. Right. And um, it is stunning and I went to see it in at the IMAX and the entire prologue and 
some other parts of the film are shot in the full 65mm IMAX film format. And they deliberately chose film over digital because they wanted that aesthetic. And if you see it on the IMAX screen, I mean, the opening sequence... I mean, it's also worth noting, actually, um, the... Uh, we, we see we, we get reintroduced to the the gun barrel at the beginning, which wasn't there in all of the Daniel Craig films. I think it might have might have come back in the last couple, uh, but this is very much a, a more modernised uh, gun barrel. You see uh, Craig walk to the camera or, or walk on, turn to the camera and shoot for the first time. No blood, and then you basically move through the barrel into the opening location, which is a beautiful uh, aerial shot above a forest in Norway, and you see that. Uh, landscape reflected on the inside of the barrel mm. and so it really pulls you through and if you watch it in 3d imax which i also saw it in <laughs> uh it's even more stunning it's like those fir trees are almost wanting to mm. properly immersive 3d not shoddy post-production afterthought 3d <laughs> the real mm. deal uh, well yeah. no i suspect it would have been i mean obviously it was shot as a 2d film but then converted to 3d but i mean it but, works i mean mm. to be honest with you the very first thing that you see is the beautiful uh, metro goldwyn mayor logo now to mm. see that in 3d with leo the lion roaring Almost in your oh, face. Are you selling it to me, Carl? It's a, <laughs> no. it's a stunning thing. I've watched it and you're selling yeah. it Because I saw this just at um, uh, Jam Factory, a conventional hmm. cinema. I did hmm. not get to enjoy the sections shot specifically for IMAX. I have uh, My dear friend Noni saw this um, in what I, ha- I had to look this up, D-Box, which is um, haptic technology. It's kind of uh, – it, basically it's a chair that vibrates. Let's, I'll, just, I'll just, you know, simplify it for listeners. Um yeah, so it, I think would be distracting because I actually think this is a very immersive film on its, in its own right. I'm sure IMAX would add a lot to this. Um, but just having an amazing sound system and being able to sink into the cinema theatre with this film, uh, yeah, I don't know if you need a vibrating chair. But Carl, thoughts? <laughs> you do you. Um, well, when you're in the IMAX, you do vibrate anyway because that sound system is astonishing and Billie Eilish's theme, her singing, uh, just you could drop it. It's, it's like crystal. Absolutely stunning. Hans Zimmer, obviously, on the score, although he only came in later as well. Um, there was a bit of a changeover in the composer earlier on. Uh, but the title sequence is beautiful. Four minutes, absolutely stunning. So many motifs in there, referencing quite a few different films from Dr. No to Honor Majesty's Secret Service, Thunderball. Um, there are many comparisons between this film and Dr. No. Uh, certainly the idea of bioweaponry, very timely, viruses, mm. all that sort of stuff, getting under the skin, um, a bionic eye, which is kind of quite cool. Um, and uh, the cars, of course, you know, we see four classic uh, Aston Martins from across the series. Yeah, I, okay, I'm just going to pull out one uh, <laughs> one criticism. I'm just going to focus on my one beef about this film. Uh, I do find it infuriating in the Bond franchise that the villain must have some sort of deformity or disability or some sort of um, – I I, yeah, sorry, I just got to – I just find that no, a very a frustrating – it's 2021, people. Like, I'm, I'm a bit sick of, yeah, that popping up with the villain always having to be usually Russian, but also there's, you know, there's always some sort of, you know, why do they, why do, they do that? Why do they do that, Carl? <laughs> well, in this instance, um, his family was, uh, as we find out early on, uh, was, I mean, Rami Malek's character, you know, Lucifer Safin, Russian for Lucifer, and perhaps similar to Sarin, maybe, nerve gas. Mm. Um, he, he's the one remaining member of his family. His family have been murdered by Spectre and uh, poisoned. And hence, he, although he survived, he's got that skin affliction as a result of the, the toxin. I know there's a skin. plot reason, Carl. I mean, like a... 
<laughs> Why? Because, you know, it's, Why it's just... Why do they need to? Yeah. It's well, so we know. It's so we know that he's bad. The, I think the worst Russian accent probably goes to uh, Dr. Valdo Obruchev, <laughs> who is the, uh, yeah. the, the the lead scientist on the, the nanobot weapon. And, uh, yes, he's Yeah, that's a, one for the ages. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, look, I think it's. I think for most people, you'll find this. Uh, if you don't pick it apart too much, like I am, um, I think you'll find an enjoyable ride. Oh, I think so. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's not short of spectacle uh, or suspense. No, especially that opening. Yeah, it's quite something. Um, and yeah, I mean, I'm not the biggest Bond enthusiast. I've missed some along the years. Um, I don't. I've never felt compelled to play catch up. I think I've missed one of the Craig ones. I remember being underwhelmed by one. That was probably Quantum of Solace because the yeah. name is so rubbish. So I think that probably was, contaminated yeah. the entire. <laughs> I mean, the, Skyfall was fun. Yeah, Quantum. They blame on partly the fact that it was the writer strike at the time, and they really yeah. struggled to get it over the line. There were a whole heap of challenges. That's what they say. Uh, and what's so. the other one? The... Oh, Skyfall Spectre was the more recent oh, one. Spectre, Spectre was good. Yeah. I enjoyed Spectre yeah. a lot. Yeah. I, I, look, I enjoy these films. I, I do think they're trying to do something a bit different with Bond. I'm sad that, you know, this is going to be Daniel Craig's last one. Um, oh, never yeah. say never again. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad to have had Carl um, on, on with us for this segment because it's been very illuminating. Um, so thank you for joining us, Carl. It's been fun. If you want to check out No Time to Die, it's currently showing at all major cinemas, uh, including IMAX. And if you really want to knock your socks off, you can go to that vibrating chair for the D-Box. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Cerise Howard and myself, Flick Ford. Just prior to that was the sound of Tom York, Johnny Greenwood and a drum machine. It is indeed Greenwood who provides the haunting score of our next film, Jane Campion's The Power of the Dog. It's just a man. Only another man. could be so unsettling. <laughs> um, I feel like in that clip you can actually hear some of Johnny Greenwood's score kind of creep through there and, you know, like I said, it kind of um, it really beautifully demonstrates the weaponization of, of sound and, and in particular the sound of um, a particular man whistling. Um, there's also a line in there saying just a man, another man. There's a lot of men in this film, The Power of the Dog. It's an interesting bookend in some ways to Campion's uh, The Piano, which was from 1993, I think. Um, Cerise, what are your thoughts? Like, What can you tell us about Jane Campion's The Power of the Dog? 
Yeah, it's. Um, I, I don't think it's quite right to call it a western. No, people have been. I think people just see, oh, they're on a ranch. That's yeah, they got western a herd up. of cattle. Yeah, um, there's a bit of cowboyish garb, and notionally they're in Montana in 1925. Yes, correct. Um, looks an awful lot like a targo. Um, <laughs> yes, shot in New Zealand. Yeah, that's it. I don't <laughs> really know quite what Montana, Montana should look like, but um, I mean, as a Kiwi, I, I recognise those sort of landscapes, and they're stunning. Mm. So I heard um, Ari Wegner, the cinematographer, and Jane Campion, the director of The Power of the Dog, spent a lot of time in the South Island having a look and trying to find uh, a landscape that was perfectly iconic enough to work their way – it works its way into the narrative. So it's actually really important that they got that right and they found it in Otago. Yeah, that they did. And I presume they built this extraordinary house there where much of the action is centred. It's a, it's a ranch house, so it doesn't look like any ranch house I've ever seen. It's got a real gothic mm. quality to it inside and out. Uh, yeah, I mean, cinematographer Ari Wagner has – Oh, underlit the interior beautifully. Mm. It's so brown and and uh, harsh. And and cold. I mean, they comment on the coldness of the house and that's not just to do with temperature. It has got to do with the way in which one of um, – there's a new wife that is in, introduced to these two brothers who run and own the ranch and um, she doesn't get the warmest welcome, does she? No. Well, um, Phil – <laughs> Phil, played by Benedict Cumberbatch, doesn't even seem to see a need to light a fire. Um, he seems to be in his element in the cold. He's quite a cold fish. Yes. Um, a He's very, a man of the land. He is a man of the land, <laughs> a hard, rugged man of the land. Um, definitely an odd couple running this with his brother who is prim and uptight. And, and, and showered. And, and, and do washes, yeah, and, <laughs> and uh, who is sort of stocky. Yes. Um, and clearly doesn't get his hands too dirty. And for the listeners who haven't uh, seen the trailer, it's played by Jesse Plemons, who mm. is um, Kirsten Dunst, who plays the new wife, uh, her real-life partner. Oh, is that right? Yeah. I did not know that. Yeah. Um, I loved the mm, – I don't even know where to begin with this film. I feel like this is going to – let me say this every week. It's a really difficult film to navigate It is how to not give any spoilers because there's so much in this. Uh, I just want to touch upon something that always stands out for me with Campion's work is uh, the tactility that she's able to capture on screen. And you hear a bit of th- that in the clip with the, the – tightening of ropes and there's lots of objects that pop Mm. up throughout this film and the objects are it kind of reminds me a bit of um freud's theory around how repressed desire comes out uh through objects and and our use of them and Mm. fetish yes fetishes and desire sexual desire is a huge uh very powerful um sometimes very dangerous thread in the power of the dog uh Oh, how do we talk about it, Cerise? <laughs> well, it, it, we, we talk about that it's difficult to talk about because mm. there is a lot of, I wouldn't exactly say outright misdirection or red herrings, but we are toyed with a little mm. by um, a, a filmmaker on top of her game. Um, we do spend a lot of time um, with Phil, with Benedict Cumberbatch's character, in close-up. We spend yes. a lot of time just being around him as he exudes just a, a Hard to pin down sense of menace. I think, yeah, the thing that popped up for me was a sense of threat. And I'm not sure at some point in the film, 
the locus of that threat shifts and but each character in their own way taps into that and um, I found that myself um, having a huge amount of uh empathy sometimes where I was surprised to find mm. it. And I think that's down to the work of um, Wegner and Campion who are able to capture the vulnerability of these men and the way in which society so often, uh, you know, we talk about patriarchal society and patriarchal control in the, in relation to how it maybe imprisons women's, women or keeps women down. But what you see in this film, and you know, some people are talking about it as an, this interrogation of toxic masculinity. I think it's more than that. It's a, it's a, it's a exploration of all the different ways in which masculinity is as much in a cage as any other gender norm. Yeah, and uh, yes, look, it's set in the 1920s, but it could be the 2020s. Mm, really, indeed. these these are time worn, but also very current themes. Mm. And um, you know, all of the characters become quite relatable in their own peculiar ways. Um, they're, they're, these are really three-dimensional characters. They're, they're not ciphers, which is mm. something, you know, the sort of character you often do get in your authentic Westerns. You do yeah. get real types, and they're not types. No. no they're in complex, fact, rich characters. Each actually existing uh, at the edge of a society um, in different ways. Um, they, they sort of threaten to become types. And yes. that's, I think, part of the play in this game, this sort of expectations that we might hold within us from seeing certain sorts of performance and certain mm. sorts of genre tropes that are attributed to the Western and perhaps even that's part of the misdirection, even putting this film out there as a Western when mm. it, it isn't really... I, I think of this film, if I was to put it into um, – use an analogy or a, or a visual metaphor perhaps, I think about Phil Burbank in uh, tightening uh, the cowhide into rope mm. and the way in which he plaits, plaits the skin over each other. And that's how I think this film is constructed where layers of characters and their vulnerabilities, their fears, their anxieties, the way they threaten other characters is laid upon one another in this very delicate overlay and they're each coming from it, in, as you said, very full characters. They're not they're – no, no one's a bit part in this in this film really. And I think this is possibly one of Benedict Cumberbatch's best – performances ever i i i just was completely Pretty committed yeah everyone's committed in this film though yeah yeah it's a mate it's a stellar cast i i was reading something about um the work that um campion just allowed for i mean I was, we mentioned the score before by johnny greenwood campion has never actually met hasn't met greenwood in person and so this was all conducted over zoom right. um because this, this was a film made during the lockdown and um so she just allowed for Greenwood to basically come up with his own score um, based on his interpretation because this is a book based on a book. And I think she allowed for that same freedom with a lot of the characters. And I was reading about um, the this, there's this beautiful scene in which Phil is uh, lying down and he has a silk scarf. Mm. Um, and again, another item, another object that is linked to... Uh, I won't give away, <laughs> but it, it, there's a lot of objects with with significance in this film, and it's so beautifully captured. And apparently, you know, 
all the rest of the film that um, Wegner uh, was talking about, like every frame was like, what information is this frame? Oh, it's it's yeah. really economical because yeah. not a lot is actually said in the film, but no. a lot is carried in the body, in movements and in stillness. Absolutely. Um, but, that, but that one scene with, with the silk scarf, yes. completely improvised. Huh? So there's these moments huh. of allowing for intuition. For magic to happen. <laughs> there's there also are. an astonishing um, musical sequence within the film, not mm. on the score, but actually a diegetic sequence, um, which calls to mind... Um, some other notable sort of quasi-Westerns, one in particular directed by John Borman. I don't know if I need to say too much, but the banjo was prominent in that mm. one as well. Again, the menace. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Who knew that banjos were so menacing? <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, I, I, this film has very much got under my skin. I saw it last night and I'm... I just want to listen to every interview and just um, – I'm actually really tempted to read the book because the book is autobiographical um, uh-huh. to some extent about Savage's life. So um, I don't want to talk too much about that because I feel like that would uh, gives away too much of the film. But enough to say that Campion also takes it somewhere else and I think takes it really masterfully into territory, like you said, Cerise, is so contemporary. The other curious thing about this, which I think only she could have brought to it, is that, yes, it's meant to be set in the American West. Now Mm. it's 1925. It's definitely America. And yet, for me, this is New Zealand Gothic, which she Mm. is a specialist in as well. And if you think of the piano and before that, An Angel at My Table, that same sensibility and that same uh, eeriness about the landscape and and how people struggle within it, that it's the landscape itself seems to just have a... um, uh, a, a power to it um, that can uh, just make humans feel very small, mm. put them in their place and, and have them just a little anxious. And that, that really transmits. Mm. I got this from that. I felt this is – if there is a little New Zealand Gothic genre and you look at um, perhaps um, uh, Vincent Ward's films as well, uh, Vigil and um, Navigator and Medieval Odyssey, this, he captures it too. They're, they're the two filmmakers there. Peter Jackson has tapped into it as well with Heavenly Creatures. There's just something about the New Zealand landscape and certain filmmakers from there who can, um, yeah, for me, maybe I'm especially receptive as a New Zealander, but I feel uneasy. Mm. Oh, the, <laughs> uneasy is the, the subtitle of this yeah. film, for sure. I, I think a really meaningful unease. I actually watched this and Bond in uh, this weekend and um, whilst I was reading Rick Morton's uh, My Year of Living Vulnerably, I think is what it's called, an amazing memoir that actually talks all about um, masculinity and trauma and, and lots of other things. And so it was really interesting watching these two films which are actually about quite damaged men um, and how they navigate their world. Um, Bond, quite different <laughs> from Phil Burbank, but not too dissimilar in some ways. In some ways, yeah. Mm. And I think the what we're not allowed to be or express is, is really fascinating and, and that question of restraint um, and vulnerability plays out very much in uh, Campion's The Power of the Dog. Yeah, and how that impacts upon others mm. in that person's orbit, mm. which is really a lot of it what this film is concerned with. Yeah, I I really want to have a discussion of The Power of the Dog with a spoilers alert. Like just say, look, if you if you haven't watched it, tune out and we can do a proper um, deep dive, but perhaps we can do that at the pub 
in a few in a few minutes. Um, uh, the Power of the Dog, Jane Campion's latest film, is currently showing at cinemas, and it's soon going to be available on Netflix. Um, but look, just see it on the big screen. Yeah, if you can. Yeah, do. it is sure. It is pure pure beauty. I think possibly one of my favourite films of the year. Uh, it's yeah, it's in my body now. I I feel like this is amazing, and and look, nobody's home sound system is good enough for Johnny Greenwood's score. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R. Hi, uh, I am Robert Machoyan, and you're listening to Primal Screen on Triple uh, R. You are indeed listening to Primal Screen. Uh, I'm your host, Flick Ford, and I've been joined by the wonderful Cerise Howard. At the start of the hour, we spoke with one of the programmers of the upcoming Japanese Film Festival's Japanese Film Festival. Um, the Japanese Film Festival is in its 25th year of operation and it's going to kick off this Sunday and it's going to be running until the 5th of December. You can buy tickets at japanesefilmfestival.net. We also reviewed the la- latest outing of Daniel Craig as James Bond in No Time to Die and we finished up just prior with Jane Campion's masterful and brooding exploration of masculinity in The Power of the Dog. A big thank you to Simone for chatting to us uh, about the Japanese Film Festival to Carl Chapman for jumping on the mic and providing a detailed 101 on 007 and to Cerise for being in love with Campion as much as me. (laughs) You can listen back online on rrr.org.au and while you're there, you can also subscribe to our podcast, which is currently being edited by the fabulous Mish Ferner. And a big thank you to all our subscribers, many of whom we saw at our two special subscriber screenings last week. While we didn't get a chance to talk about uh, Zola tonight, we're going to be reviewing Bad Luck Banging or Looney Porn on next week's show. Plus, we're going to be speaking with the director. So don't miss out on that. Thanks for listening to Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. 